about it, okay, 61,000. If you think about it, that's for taxi driver, that's for, uh, what do we say, booking and everything. That does not include EMT, right? Men? Hostage negotiator? Uh-huh. You start adding all that in, you know it comes to way, way more than 61000 a year. And, of course, if you add in uncounted love for all my family members, you cannot stick on that. So we welcome moms today. We look forward to uh, what God has for us. Sometimes we ask our moms, you know, what she wants on her special day, and we often receive a response. Oh, nothing. Just take me out to eat. Um, there's a card or flowers or something like that. Moms are like that. And you know what? It's often more about what they don't ask for. My family would be loving and forgiving to one another. There'd be harmony. And that love would be evident when we're all together. It's a functional family as opposed to a dysfunctional family. We're going to take the next few minutes to look at the in Scripture at a family to see, and what we're going to see is God's grace and sovereignty throughout. We've already started looking at the person of Joseph in the Old Testament, Genesis chapter 37. If you look at your Bible and turn to that, because we're going to be looking through different portions of Joseph's life and seeing what kind of things were different, uh, what kind of things took place in his life. Genesis chapter 37. Genesis chapter 37. There we go. Okay, so everything I, ha- I have to start over. Everything I said before you didn't know. I won't do that. Okay, we heard you. Good. Uh, recently, Anita and I were driving through a, a subdivision, uh, one of these nice subdivisions outside of Chicago, uh, where in that particular subdivision, if you live there, you have to conform pretty much to everybody else. Uh, they have these rules and policies where uh, your mailbox has to be a certain height and painted a certain color. Uh, if, you, if your garbage is picked up on Monday, it's got to be your empty garbage can has to be pulled back on Tuesday, and all kinds of things like that. And so as you drive through, it looks, it, I mean, it looks really nice. Uh, all the lawns are neatly mown and everything like that. As we're driving, uh, we pass this one house, and the garage door was open. Oh, my goodness. From floor to ceiling, chaos. It was junk. I mean, it was just packed in there. Of course, everything else outside was real nice, but inside this garage, it was a mess. And we kept driving and seeing, I'd see the other garage doors closed, and I think, hmm, I wonder what theirs are like. Families are like that. Sometimes there's a lot on the outside that we put up a good front. But inside, there's a lot of stuff that we're hiding. Sometimes chaotic. Sometimes messy. But there's a lot of stuff that we hide hides the dis- dysfunction. Or we create a fo- uh, Facebook profile that does the same thing. Looks good to everyone else. I'm fairly certain 
that it's safe to say that we're all affected in some way by some dysfunction in our families, whether it be our immediate families or our extended families. And so I think I can speak to that today saying, this affects all of us. And we're going to look at the life of Joseph very briefly and see what we can find, to see if we can find a few things that we can learn about families from the life of Joseph. Well, you look back at the family history, you, you can learn a lot, a lot. Even before Genesis chapter 37, you look through Genesis, uh, the whole book of Genesis, you look at the, start with his grandparents, Isaac and Rebekah. Show, Isaac showed favoritism to his son Esau, which is Joseph's uncle, and Rebekah showed favoritism to Jacob, which is Joseph's father. And then from that, you have Jacob, a dysfunctional family there as well, a deceiver. He cheated his brother out of his inheritance and his birthright. Deceived by others and deceiving others himself, carried that pattern into old age. Not only that, Jacob chose to disregard God's plan for a monogamous marriage and had three other wives besides Joseph's mother, Rachel. In spite of all this, God at his grace and his sovereignty chose to bless Jacob's family. Look in the chapter before, you see that Jacob's daughter was raped. And then the perpetrators were killed by two of Jacob's sons. And until the middle of this mess, we meet Joseph, a young man of age 17, Genesis chapter 37. And Jacob carries on the tradition of playing favorites. And within those few verses, Pastor Ralph read of this narrative, we see the seeds of dysfunction being planted in this large, blended family as well. Look at those first few verses, beginning in verse 2. Joseph, being 17 years old, was pasturing the flock with his brothers. He was a boy with the sons of Bilhah and Zilpah, his father's wives. And Joseph brought a bad report of them to their father. Now, Israel loved Joseph, that's Jacob, loved Joseph more than any of his other sons because he was the son of his old age. And he made him a robe of many colors. But when his brothers saw that their father loved him more than all his brothers, they hated him and could not speak peacefully to him. Look at that. Just those few verses. Man, what a setup. This poor guy, poor Joseph, right? He's competing with 11 other sons. He brings a bad report. Now, that's truth-telling, whatever the case might be. It doesn't really uh, help his cause. Jacob shows favoritism to him, openly so, by giving him a coat of many colors, which at that time signified that Joseph was going to be the heir. And so his brothers harbored a deep, deep hatred for Joseph and openly ridiculed him. Hate is a powerful force. It blinds us to logic, blinds us to reason, numbs our feelings, and is usually denied by those who possess it. It's not easily dissolved or removed. Hatred serves as a fuel for the blazing flame of anger or for the smoldering coals of resentment. Not the same as anger, but anger fueled by hate is always destructive. Chapter 37 is a dark chapter. If you look throughout it, there's not, God is not even mentioned in the entire chapter. Verses 5 through 8. Joseph has a dream, and in this dream... His bundle of wheat stands out in the field and his brother's bundles of wheat all bow down to his. 
And you see that his brothers hated him even more. And then his second dream, the sun, moon, and the stars bow down to him. And this one draws a rebuke from Jacob, saying, Son, he's up with the dreams. Now, Jacob should have known. I mean, after all, he was one that God communicated to a number of times through, gene, through dreams. And here his son was as well. So he was listening. Jacob was noting this. And in verses 12 through 36 of chapter 37, now we're going to skip rather quickly through Joseph's life. This would take weeks to be able to go through Joseph's life and see everything that happened, but we won't take the time to do that. We'll just skim through a few points, pertinent points, and then at the end we're going to say, what can we learn from Joseph's life? Well, look at this first pivotal event in Joseph's life. Jacob says to him, go find your brothers. They're shepherding. Now, this wasn't a day trip. Uh, This was about 60 miles north, the country of Shechem. And as I'm talking, you can glance through and look through that chapter and see what's taking place because I'm only going to highlight a few of the things. Now, probably for Joseph, this is a welcome, uh, this is probably a welcome adventure. I mean, am I going to stay home and continue to shovel sheep manure or should I go find my brothers? I'll go find my brothers. So he probably welcomed the break. He said, he wanted you to go find your brothers in the country of Shechem. So he heads north. Somebody there tells him, no, they're not here. They're even further in the country of Dothan, so he has to go another ten miles. And as he is wandering around looking, his brothers afar off see this figure coming towards them by himself. Well, who's that? It's not a shepherd. And as they watch, he comes closer. That looks like Joseph's coat. It is. It's Joseph. And before he ever gets to them, they have hatched a plan. We're going to take our opportunity now to get rid of this guy. See, three things. I mean, they, they already, he already had against him. They were, um, first of all, he bought a, brought a bad report against them uh, to his father. And then his father gives him this coat. And then on top of that, he has some dreams that imply that somehow they're going to be bowing down to him. So they were ready for this moment. Here we are, 70 miles from home. Nobody's ever going to find out. We're going to take him out now. Now, Reuben, the oldest brother, says, wait, 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 hold on. Uh, let's not just kill him. Let's throw him down in this empty pit. It's probably a dry well. Couldn't climb out. Let's throw him down there and leave him there to die. Reuben's thinking, I'll come back later, pull him out, take him home to dad, and all will be good. So his brothers hatched that plan. And he said, this is it. So here comes Joseph, innocent. What has he done? Nothing. Comes up, hey, brothers. Why are you looking at me like that? And they immediately seize him, tie him up, toss him down the pit. And he's like, wait, wait, wait. Now, this is, you don't understand. Something's wrong here. He's probably protesting, pleading for his life, realizing that these guys are serious. His brothers sit down, have a bite to eat, probably taunting him from the top of the well. And as they do, this caravan comes by, a row of camels and donkeys and so forth, on the way to Egypt. And his brothers have this brilliant idea. Okay, we're not just going to leave him there. We'll get rid of him and we'll make some money off of him in the the meantime. So they stop a few people in the the caravan and say, Hey, we have a slave we'd like to sell you. Oh, really? They pull him up. Joseph cannot believe his ears. You're not going to sell me to these people. They're going to take me to Egypt. I'll never see my family again. Remember, he's only 17 years old. But for all of his 17 years... Family and home has been his comfort area. And all of a sudden, life change. You talk about life change. Some of us just, 
you know, graduate high school and go to college, and that's life change. This was significant. He's, who knows? In fact, he may even lose his life. So they pull him up and sell him to the Ishmaelite traders, the Midianites, for 20 pieces of silver, 20 shekels, 20 pieces of silver. Joseph cannot believe his ears. He's betrayed by his own brothers and sold into slavery. For what? He did nothing. So the traders take off, and probably he's tied up on the back of a camel as they're leaving and watching his brothers count out two for you, two shekels for you, two shekels for you, ten brothers, twenty shekels, two, do- two shekels apiece. Probably will get a latte or something for that. But it wasn't about the money. It was about getting rid of our brother. And off he goes. They go back to the, the father. Oh, no, no, wait, the robe. There's his robe. We've got to do something with that. What are we going to tell Jacob? And so here's the plan. We're going to kill an animal, uh, spill the blood onto the robe, take it back, and show it to Jacob. And sure enough, they get back. Jacob sees that, comes to his own conclusion. Note that in the end of the chapter. Comes to his own conclusion. A wild animal has killed my son. This is the son he loved. This is the son with Rachel who died in childbirth with Benjamin. A father or mother's grief is something that cannot be compared. He assumed this is the end of my son's life. Can you imagine the grief? And his brother stood by and said, mm-hmm, mm-hmm, that's pretty bad. Yeah, we feel bad about that. And said nothing. Jacob assumed that Joseph was dead. Twenty years intervene. We're going to have to skip through this. Oh, meanwhile, Joseph is sold to Potiphar, uh, an official in the house of Pharaoh. We find that out at the end of chapter 27, uh, 37. Chapter 38 is another dark chapter. More family dysfunction between Judah and Tamar. And then in chapters 39 through 41, we read some about Joseph's life there in Egypt. More betrayal, more unfairness, more injustice. Chapter 39, Joseph shows the strength of character and resists the advances of Potiphar's wife. And he's rewarded by being thrown in jail. Chapter 40, God interprets the dreams of the cupbearer and the baker. But Joseph is forgotten and left in jail. Chapter 41, Pharaoh has a dream. And in this dream, he discovers that Joseph, I'm sorry, as a result of this dream, he discovers that Joseph is able to interpret dreams. Pulls Joseph out of prison. Joseph tells him, I'll tell you what, Pharaoh, you know what the meaning of this dream is? There are going to be seven years of plenty where the land is just going to produce so much. And then there are going to be seven years of famine, nothing. And you need to prepare for it. Pharaoh likes that, likes Joseph elevates him to the position of second in command in the entire country and one day goes from being a lowly uh, slave in prison to being second in command. And this is all part of, this is all God's design. This is all part of the character building process in Joseph's life. And so seven, seven years into this, after these seven years of plenty, comes this famine and people start coming. For food, they need to buy food, and Joseph has it because he's stored up for seven years. People come from all over the place. In fact, back in Canaan, Jacob says to the ten brothers, 
you need to go to Egypt. I hear that there's grain there. Now, you've got to wonder at this point. I mean, this is, this is speculation. So I have to be careful with speculation. But you've got to wonder if Joseph, seeing all these people coming from all over the world to grain, for grain, was running, would there be anybody coming from Canaan? And you've got to wonder if the brothers on their way to Egypt think, we traded our brother to Egypt. I wonder if we'll see him there. Who knows? Maybe there was. Maybe there was a thought there. We don't know. But here Joseph is. He's the relief coordinator, so to speak, for Pharaoh. And all the people are coming to him to buy grain. And he sees off in the distance, he sees ten men coming, and he can tell they had come from a long way. No, that can't be. And as they come closer, sure enough, Now, these ten men don't recognize who Joseph is because Joseph is dressed and behaves and speaks like an Egyptian. And we've been there for 20 years. And as they come closer, as is the custom, the ten of them bow down to Joseph. Can you imagine being Joseph at that moment? Remember those dreams? And here it was. Remember those dreams came from? God himself. Here were his ten brothers bowing down to him just like in those dreams. Now, if you're you're Joseph, okay, this is your moment, right? He's a powerful, powerful person. See, the roles are reversed. Whereas before, he was powerless and his brothers had the power. Now it's different. He has the power. He could turn them around and send them back to, to, uh, to Canaan. Give no food to those people. He could have them tied up and serve as his slaves. He could have them killed in an instant, but he doesn't do that. He allows to see, he wants to see if there has been any repentance, any desire for restoration on the part of his brother. So he accuses them of being spies. We have skipped all the way to chapter 42. If you want to page over to that, chapter 42, he accuses them of being spies. You're spies. In fact, I'm going to keep you in custody until you bring your brother Benjamin. His brothers are... We're not spies, really. We just want food. We just want to buy food in chapter 42. And then they start talking among one another. And this is a key point. They start talking among one another. And Joseph realizes that, yes, there may be opportunity for reconciliation and restoration. They're talking to one another in Hebrew, and they don't know that he understands. Chapter 42, verse 21, they said to one another, In truth, we are guilty concerning our brother, in that we saw the distress of his soul when he begged us and we did not listen. That is why this distress has come upon us. And Reuben answered them, Told you so. That's a paraphrase. I told you so. I told you we shouldn't have done that. And so as he hears this, note in verse 24 of chapter 42, he turned away from them and wept. This is the first of three times we find Joseph weeping. There was repentance and and reconciliation, a desire for that in his heart as well. Well, we have to skip through. I'm, I'm, I'm really having to skip through quite a few verses here because we want to get to, to the point where we say, what can we learn from this? He sends them back without Simeon, but he says, next time you've got to bring Benjamin with you. 
so it comes time for more grain, and it's Judah who convinces Jacob that they must bring Benjamin. Jacob doesn't want to do that, and understandably so. He's already lost Joseph in his mind, and then Simeon was kept there in Egypt, and now the brothers, wanted, the nine brothers, want to take Benjamin with him, with them. Finally, he relents, and this is as a result of Judah pleading and saying, "The only way we're going to get food is if we take uh, Benjamin." And so, here come these men again, and Joseph sees them coming and says, one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten. They brought Benjamin. And what happens again? Chapter 43, verse 30. Uh, 29, he lifted up his eyes and saw his brother Benjamin, his mother's son, and said, Is this your youngest brother of whom you spoke to me? God be gracious to you, my son. And Joseph hurried out, for his compassion grew warm for his brother, and he sought a place to weep. Well, more events take place. He sends them back, but he puts his personal cup in Benjamin's sack. That's discovered, and the brothers come back, and uh, Joseph says, you, Benjamin, must stay here and be my slave. And it's at this point that Judah steps up and says, this can't be. And he explains the whole story about the father and the, his love for Benjamin. And so through this process, almost, almost two years uh, of going through this process of back and forth, we come to chapter 45, verse 1, where Joseph says, he could, where Joseph could not control himself before all the, those who stood by him. He cried, make everyone go out from me. So no one stayed with him when Joseph made himself known to his brothers. Here's another moment, can you imagine, for the brothers. All this back and forth. Who is this man? Why is he doing this to us? It's our brother Joseph. No way. How did that happen? And Joseph tells them it's because of God. It's his design that this happened. And there was repentance and restoration and reconciliation because of Joseph's ability to forgive and love his brothers. Amazing. So his brothers go back, get his father Jacob, tell his father Jacob, and Jacob cannot believe it, and the whole family comes to Egypt, and we know that that's the start of the nation of Israel as they're there in Egypt for 400 years. It's an amazing story. And we've only looked at, we only skimmed across the top of it, but you look at Joseph and all that took place in his life, and wow, how he came out at the end and still forgiving and still able to reconcile with his brothers. There was a few lessons that Joseph's life and his obedience teach us. One, dysfunctional families are everywhere. They existed in Bible times as they do today. You don't believe it? Just read the advice columns in the newspaper. The Dear Abby. If you read those every day, pretty soon your own family starts to look like the Cosby family. Because uh, there's some messed up people. There's some messed up families. And you look in the scripture. Adam stood by while Eve was deceived. Cain killed his brother Abel. Abraham slept with Hagar and lied about Sarah being his wife. Jacob, a life of deceit. King David, adultery, then murder. But God still worked his plan as he does today through sinners like you and me. God is gracious and he is sovereign. That's what we can learn from the life of Joseph. Another thing that we can learn is dysfunction is often passed on and compounded from generation to generation. It doesn't have to be that way, but it's a fact. We know, what we know is the patriarchs 
Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob all had family dysfunctions. Families today, we often suffer from the consequences of sins of those who went before us. We, like Joseph, are often unwilling victims of those who sinned before us. I did something recently, just kind of a personal exercise. I started to sketch out my family tree. I'm going to put me in Anita, and then her parents, my parents, and and on up to grandparents and great-grandparents, and then uh, circles below for our children and so on. And it was interesting because as as you look at those, there's many on there. You can't do anything about what went on before you. Okay, those are done and gone. I don't know a whole lot about my great-grandparents. Um, my grandparents I do remember, but there, I, can't go back, I can't go back and change anything there. However, there are things that I can do here and now. And those relationships that I have in my own family here and now, there is something that I can do in those relationships. I can't go back and change what I wanted before, but I can do something now. Third, the sin of self-centeredness is often at the core of a family's dysfunction. Is that true? The sin of self-centeredness, and you think about it, pride, uh, somebody looking for an inheritance, greed, possessions, position. Joseph's brothers were infected by that. We, we, we call it being a victim of the environment, but I'll tell you what, we're sinners just like those who went before us. Call it what it is, sin. Fourth, God works in spite of our family's dysfunction. Many of us have already seen God's grace in this area. And I know what some of you are thinking. You don't know my family. I tell you what. Look at Joseph. Look at the life of Joseph. Deceit in his family. Rape. Murder. Betrayal. Kidnapping. If God can work in the life of Joseph, can he not work in our families as well? See, it's, it's, it's not that it's, well, it's different today. It's the same God. It's the same God who worked and continues to work. It's the God who creates character in us, as he did in Joseph. That's a key thing we need to walk away with. We can't say, oh, you don't know my family. God does. And he's fully, fully able to work in his way and his time. I'm sure Joseph had ideas of, you know, it should be this way, God. God chose to work in his way and his time. See, we can trust him for that and not try to seek revenge on our own. Justice does not equal revenge. Right? Just because someone is brought to justice does not mean that there is revenge. Romans chapter 12, verse 19, Beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God, for it is written, Vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. The Lord is the one who brings justice in his time and in his way, just like he did in the life of Joseph. And it was not through revenge. Fifth, allowing God to work means we will neither avoid nor be overwhelmed by the dysfunctions of our family relationships. That's, that's, a, that's a big one to chew on. Allowing God to work means we will neither avoid nor be overwhelmed by the dysfunctions of our family relationships. We tend to either avoid or impulsively react when we're faced with family conflict. 
Either we keep the garage door tightly shut and nobody ever sees and it keeps building up inside, or we open it up and start throwing things all over the yard. Neither, neither is what we're looking for. Neither will resolve the issues. And allowing God to work does not mean we simply roll over and let the pain continue. There is a place for speaking the truth in love. That's from Ephesians. But often we're better at the speaking truth part than the love part. Someone once asked me, and I may have told you this before, but someone once asked me in the context of truth-telling, how do I do that? How do I tell this person the things they need to hear? How do I speak the truth in love? How can I, having a firm conviction of what is true and what is God's truth, speak it into another person's life? Wrong question. Did you get that? Rather... How can I love this person so much that my life, my words, my actions convey truth into his or her life? That's where it is. We're all about the truth. We've got to somehow tell it. We've got to somehow convey it. Love that person and trust God that that's going to be conveyed into their life. Love comes first. Let truth follow. Sixth, the path to a functional family begins at the door of forgiveness. The path to a functional family begins at the door of forgiveness. This gets personal. Joseph's basis for forgiveness in chapter 45 did not come from justice being served, but from his depth of character, which had its roots in his trust in God. I want to repeat that phrase. We need to hear this. Joseph's basis for forgiveness did not come from justice being served, but from his depth of character, which had its roots in his trust in God. See, part of the problem is we like being victims. It gets us attention and sympathy. We become professionals at portraying ourselves as victims. And doing it successfully means we can absolve ourselves of any wrongdoing, but we need to forgive. We need to take that personal step of forgiveness. Forgiveness, we know this, it's hard, it's a choice, and it's a process. John Piper says, Forgiveness is essentially God's way of removing the great obstacle to our fellowship with Him. See, it's about God and wanting fellowship with us. That's about forgiveness. It's not about us forgiving so that we can feel better. Well, it might come as a side benefit, but it's about our fellowship with God. That's why there is forgiveness. See, we risk wasting our lives by either avoiding or being overwhelmed by the dysfunctions of our own family relationships. It does not have to be this way. Forgiveness does not equal reconciliation either. Forgiveness is a choice that you or I make. Reconciliation means that both have made, their choice, have made that choice and want to come together. See, reconciliation begins with forgiveness, but it depends on the other person as well. And sometimes it's hard for us because we want reconciliation. I'm going to forgive that person so that in some way we can be reconciled, and that's our way of manipulating the situation. That's not what it's about. It's forgiveness so that we can have fellowship with God. He may choose to bring about reconciliation or it may not happen. 
Sometimes the hearts are so hard that that does not happen. That's hard for us to accept. But we can't take care of that. We can only take care of our own forgiveness of that person and trust God with the rest. And that's what Joseph was doing. And it took 20 years. And it took God's work in the hearts of his brothers because he couldn't manipulate the situation, but he chose to forgive. See, truly seeking resolution to the dysfunctions of our own families allows God to catch up in his pursuit of us. See, God is always pursuing us. He's always poking. He's always prodding. He's always pulling. And, and taking the step of forgiveness gives God that chance to get his hand on us and our shoulders and say, I'm here. I'm with you. We need that. In family conflict situations where we are potentially part of the reconciliation process, we have the opportunity to take steps to mend the relationship. Very, very difficult steps, but steps that are indicative of our growing maturity in Christ. But what's behind your garage door? You'd have a garage sale? Put a few things on Craigslist? You know, I'm thinking back, isn't it sad that it's only when we encounter perhaps the death of a loved one or the break in a relationship that we think of and reflect on the brevity of life? And our series is Don't Waste Your Life. We have such a short time here. We have only a few years to enjoy the fellowship and the company company of our family members. Make the most of it. Begin now. Would you pray with me? Our Heavenly Father, we do thank you for the opportunity that we have to be able to forgive. We realize that it comes from you first. We ourselves are forgiven, even though we do not deserve it. Oh, Lord, we desire that for our families as well. We desire that each of us are seeking consistently the reconciliation that you bring about, reconciliation that starts in our hearts as we forgive one another, is so vividly illustrated for us in the lives of the people in the Bible. Teach us from that. Help us to walk away today knowing that, yes, indeed, nobody knows our family, but I'll tell you what, Father, you are much, much bigger than anything that takes place in our families. We trust you with that. We thank you for that. We commit our families to you. We pray these things in Jesus' name.